Blog Talk Radio. Guys, Guys Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to podcast number 327 of Guys, Guys Radio. Wow, that's a lot of podcasts, and we're just getting warmed up. What makes life worth living? That is the topic we're going to discuss this evening with our special guest, writer of the book Brother John, A Monk, A Pilgrim, and the Purpose of Life, August Turak. He's going to call in, and we're going to talk to him. Uh, looking forward to that. I uh, hope everybody's getting all ramped up for Thanksgiving. I noticed when I was on the subway uh, today, I had to go down to Grand Central late in the afternoon to go to the – there's a watch repair place in Grand Central Station in New York City. It's been there forever. It's down around uh, Gate 45, I believe, and tucked away, and they can do anything. And it's interesting, it's not necessarily going to be what they do is necessarily going to be that cheap, but you can't find a problem that they can't fix or come up with something. So uh, I noticed, though, there was a lot of people in that getaway mode. People, I walk fast. People were walking. When I took the C train down to 42nd Street and I walked through that tunnel to take the shuttle to get over the Grand, Grand Central from the west side, and I walked pretty fast, as I just mentioned. People were passing me going up the stairs. That's how filled with anxiety and excitement people can be in New York when you get around the holidays, too, especially since we've had this bizarre fall. I've mentioned it a number of times. It's it's like cloudy. It's like this black cloud following New York around every day. Today was supposed to be a sunny, beautiful day. Now there's black clouds all around the city again. It's uh, amazing. Since Labor Day. The weather has been its cloudy almost every day. It's so weird. Um, but we had the freak snowstorm last week, and and uh, that got people all anxious because people, uh, you know, they got stuck on the highways. They got stuck in the subway. They got stuck at Port Authority. And it's like, when they want to go now, it's like, I got to get out of here. <laughs> That's how it is in New York. So it's a very... There's a lot of energy here, a lot of frenetic energy right now in New York City, because as you know, Thanksgiving is the number one travel holiday. And if people aren't leaving tonight or today or this afternoon, they're certainly hightailing it out of town tomorrow if they are traveling. Uh, I'm staying local. My family, my little family, we're staying local. Uh, my family's kind of big family's kind of fragmented. This is the first time we're not going to all get together for Thanksgiving little bittersweet, but that's just the way it is. It'll be okay. You know what? Thanksgiving's changed for me over the years. It used to be my favorite holiday because I love to eat and I love the turkey and love the stuffing and love the pasta, but we don't do that anymore. I don't eat meat. So turkey's out of the way. The stuffing had meat, etc. Not eating yet. So it's going to be a little bit different. We're actually going to have uh, flounder and we're going to stuff it with crab meat. So that should be fun. Then we'll get something for my son. I have a five-year-old. He's not necessarily going to dig that. So we're going to come up with something for him too. And then on Friday, we're going to go up to the holiday train show up in the, at the Bronx Botanical Garden. If you've never been, it's really cool. They have trains, all types of rooms filled with trains. They take like a year to build this thing. It's just amazing. Now, last year we went, it was a, it was a snowstorm and it was still ridiculously crowded. We went in January. I think it might've been the week between Christmas and uh, Christmas and New Year's. This time we're going to say, okay, let's get out there. People aren't thinking about the holiday trains yet. Let's get out there Friday. So we're going to go early Friday morning, I think. Unless, you know, we change our plans, but that's the plan. But the weather is supposed to turn frigid in the next three days in New York. It's going to go down to the teens on Friday, which is crazy. So again, I'm not going to get into the whole weather thing, but it's so bizarre what's happening with our climate. Anyhow, what else is happening? Um, the train show. 
um, they actually had the train set up also in Grand Central. There's a little mass transit store there, and they do a holiday train setup. It was not as elaborate as it usually is, but uh, I think that's because they didn't put up the tree and all of that stuff yet. But my son loves to go there, and of course, every time he's there, he wants another subway train. They have these trains that cost about $16, and they have every line. They have the buses. They've got everything. The one thing they don't have that I haven't seen, which they should, is like a boat, like a, a Staten Island ferry. Um, that you can put in the water or something. They don't have that. That's an idea, though, I guess. Um, today, I went uh, early this morning. The parents dropped off kids, so I dropped off my son, and then I had to stay a little bit because we had a little kid and parent holiday feast for like an hour, and uh, that was interesting to see all the kids interacting with one another and then all the parents chit-chatting and then all the food that was put out and it was very nice, such a nice group of people, a nice group of kids. So thanks to Miss Piguero up at PS 180 in uh, Harlem here in New York City. We had a good time. And thanks to all the parents who showed up and to the kids. The kids are great. They're learning a lot. Um, so tonight we have a special guest on Guys Guys Radio. You know, Guys Guys Radio is the place where when men and women can be at their best, everyone wins. As I mentioned, we've done three. This is our 327th podcast. It all started with my novel. The Guys, Guys, Guide to Love. Then I started blogging about relationships because the book is about relationships. It's about a guy who writes a column about relationships from the male point of view. And that's on my website, Robert Manny, M-A-N-N-I.com. And then we started Guys, Guys Radio, and it was relationship-based. And then we expanded the club with including uh, metaphysical guests, authors, spiritual teachers, healers, psychics, channelers, fantasy sports experts, comedians, entertainers. We've got a producer, Hollywood producer on next week um, to talk about uh, learning the craft, how to break into the business. So we're really, what we're doing is we're putting a lot of ideas out there to help people, men and women who are seeking, seeking more than what's being served up in the day-to-day in their jobs that they have to do. And a lot of people love their jobs and a lot of people are just doing it because they have to do it. They got to pay bills. That's totally understandable. But I think a lot of people nowadays more than ever are saying, what, what, what else is there? What else is going on? And they want to expand their consciousness and their knowledge. So that's what we're doing. We're putting information out there. You might agree with some of it and some of our guests and some other guests you might not agree with. That's up to you. What I want to do is put, put these people out there, let you listen I'll ask the questions as best I can, thinking about the audience, what, what I would ask and what you might want me to ask. So I usually don't go by scripted interviews so much as ask what I feel like asking and then have a discussion and where it goes, it goes. And of course, we always talk about that somebody has a book or a program or something like that, but we don't want it to be all silly. We want it to be a conversation. But tonight, we're going to talk about something that's important to all of us, which is what makes life worth, worth living. And our guest, August Turak, he had some uh, interesting things happen to him. He, I believe he was suffering from anxiety and depression, and he went to a monastery, a Trappist monastery uh, at Mepkin Abbey Road, and uh, his life changed. He was part of the guest program there, monastic guest program. We're going to bring him on in a minute and talk about that and talk about his book. So let's take a very, very quick break, and we'll be right back on Guys Guys Radio. You're listening to the Guys Guy Radio. All right, we're back on Guys Guys Radio. As I mentioned, I was just getting into our guest, August Turak. He wrote this book. It's called Brother John, A Monk, a Pilgrim, and the Purpose of Life. He was a corporate executive in the media business, I believe, in New York City. I know he worked at MTV, among other places. And uh, I think he's from Pittsburgh because he went to the University of Pittsburgh. And um, he had some issues to deal with, and he was part of this guest monastery program, and uh, life changed, and he wrote an essay about uh, an evening. One time he met this uh, other monk, Brother John, who offered him to walk him back to, I guess, his room from the campus headquarters there uh, in the rain, and that's what he did all night. He just walked people. uh, He had an umbrella and shared that with him, and that was a big uh, tipping point. For August and life's changed. He wrote an essay about it. The essay became this book. It's beautifully illustrated. 
by Glenn Harrington. And uh, now August is out there uh, teaching us and telling us through the brothers uh, what makes life worth living. So let's bring him on right now. August Tarak, welcome to Guys Guys Radio. Thanks for having me on, Art. Oh, my pleasure. So uh, you got a very interesting story, and uh, I have lots of questions about the monks and how they live and all of that, and we'll get into your book. But uh, why don't you give your backstory and the inspiration for this book in your words instead of my words, and we'll just start from there. Well, I was always considered myself to be a spiritual seeker, uh, number one. Uh, yes, I worked for MTV and then what was now the Arts and Entertainment Network or the A&E Network in New York, and I went on to be an entrepreneur. But my real heart was always in what I considered spiritual seeking uh, from, from back in my college days. I stayed at it. And uh, so while I was starting my companies, I ended up, I lived in New York City. I was actually there today, by the way. It's interesting. You heard you talking really? about New York. I what what did you do at MTV? That's my background. I was, in, I was in sales and marketing for MTV when it first started out in 1981. So I, was, uh, I started okay. there on January 5th, 1981. It wasn't called MTV wow. then. It mm-hmm. was called Warner MX, and uh, we launched MTV on August 1st, 1981. So I was there about six months before mm-hmm. the service was launched. What a ride it and, must have been. Uh, what's that? It must have been quite the ride. It certainly was. It was one of the most fun jobs I've ever had in my life. It was unbelievable. Um, but uh, So anyway, I ended up down here in North Carolina with a, and a, uh, in the software business, and I was an entrepreneur. But I continued my spiritual seeking, and I was uh, – I was helping some college students, uh, North Carolina State University of North Carolina, Duke University. And my Duke students uh, said, come on, let's go skydiving. This was 1996 as a, as a team-building exercise. And as I wrote another book called Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks. And in that I said I was uh, brave enough to jump out of an airplane, but not brave enough to tell them I, didn't, I was too damn old to be jumping out of airplanes. I was about 45 at the time. Mm-hmm. And I uh, smashed my ankle to smithereens in the skydiving accident. And uh, I ended up in the hospital for a week or so, and I started having these intense uh, panic attacks and tr- tremendous why, why do you think you had those? Well, I'm laying there in the bed. I had nothing else to think of except why am I having these. And suddenly it hit me that I was confronting my mortality for the very first time. Yes, the doctor was coming in now and saying you're going to be going home in a week or so, but one of these days he's going to walk in and say there's nothing more we can do for you, Mr. Turek. Then what am I going to do? And I, and I reached out for my spiritual um, backbone, so to speak, and it wasn't there. I had nothing. I didn't care about anything about except what the doctor was going to say. And this in, intensified my anxiety and my panic. Anyway, I got out of the hospital. The panic attacks went away, but I entered into what I now call my two-year dark night of the soul. I was very much spiraling into depression, despair. And uh, right in a, a couple of months later, I get a telephone call from another of my students saying, you know, I'm I'm taking your advice. I'm spending a instead of just drinking beer all summer, I'm at a Trappist monastery for the summer. And something about his voice, and I just said, I got to come now. And he said, When? And I said, Now. And then I suddenly realized it was Wednesday, and I was at work at my company. And uh, I said, No, this weekend. And he said, Let me go ask Brother John. And he came back a couple minutes later. Said they said, Come on down this weekend. So I went down that weekend, and I was very much impressed. And I, so I went down the next weekend, and then the next weekend. And then I applied for what's called monastic guest status, where you actually, it's only open to men. And you can go down there and actually be a part-time monk. You wear a robe. You live in a room with them behind the cloister wall. You get up at 3 o'clock in the morning with them. You go to church eight times a day. You work on the monastic farm. And uh, and I did that for for three weeks over Christmas. And that's when I had the encounter on Christmas Eve, of all times, with Brother John and his umbrella. Um, Quick Forward is in 2004. Uh, I did. I ended up having a. In 1998, I had a spiritual experience. By the way, that helped um, cure all of this dark night. But in 2004, some of my college students challenged me to enter a uh, essay contest. The Templeton Foundation was had a Power of Purpose essay contest, and 3,500 words or less answer the question, "What is the purpose of life?" I'd never written anything for publication before. But they were goading me on, so I, tried, I said, I'll take a crack at it. It was open to previously published material, professional writers. And I wasn't getting anywhere. And another student stepped forward and said, why don't you just write that story about Brother John that you like to tell us so much? So I wrote that up in a couple of days, and I polished it for a couple of days. I put it in right at the deadline and forgot about it. And six months later, they called me, and they said, uh, you're the grand prize winner. I won $100,000 for that essay. 
And that Amazing. essay, now these 10 years later, this or so longer than that, this essay has now become the, um, the, the, the focal point of this book, The Brother John, the Monk, Pilgrim, and the Purpose of Life. So it, it won the Templeton Prize. Now, let me ask you, uh, that's a great story. First of all, the essay is very well written, and it's so authentic. And I think that's part of the reason why it's so well written, because it just comes off uh, very conversationally, but in an elegant way. And you're, it's very truthful. So congratulations for that. And the book is a beautiful book. And the illustrations by uh, the paintings by Glenn Harrington are fantastic, really add a lot to it. So a great presentation, great package. So good job there. Um, my question is, um, why do you think, I'm just curious, why do you think you had depression? What, what is it with depression where some people, in your opinion, some people get it, some people have panic attacks, and some people don't? Let me give you an example why I'm asking you that and where I'm coming from. I had one of those surprise things about um, looking into the void, if you will, about five, four years ago. I, uh, I, I was out running. I had a pain in my side. And like you, uh, instead of jumping out of an airplane, the first time I ran a marathon, I was 45. I did three between 45 and 50, but putting that aside, um, cause I was also like you, a spiritual seeker, but I, I had a pain in my side. I was out running on a long run and, uh, and, and it was unbearable and I had to go lay down. And then I, two days of just un- incredible pain. I found that I had a kidney stone, but I also, I had, uh, I had to get robotic surgery on each kidney. So the kidney stone saved my life. And, uh, at that time, my surgeon, who's a top surgeon was like, I don't know about that one kidney. Well, everything turned out fine, and uh, there was some spiritual miracles along the way, but I had to look into the void. It was the first time I faced my mortality ever, and it changed my life in a very good way. So tell me, the reason I ask is um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about that, looking into the void, and why do you think some people have um, anxiety and depression and other people don't? Because I would guess and correct me if I'm wrong, August, is that you probably had something built up inside you where the mortality triggered the attacks. It wasn't just about mortality. Is that true? Yes. Um, well, you know, it, it's, it, you know, it, this is a question for a, it's a very, very deep question. It's a very important question. I, I, and I'll just talk from my own pr- perspective. I don't Please. pretend to be an expert on everybody's depression or their lack thereof. Um, but I'll, I'll say this, you know, I had been battling depression all from the time I was about 14 years old on and off, and I would have these uh, attacks of depression. And, okay. um, and I would, um, would kind of just, after a while, I just kind of treated it like a bad cold. And I would say, mm-hmm. well, here comes another one of those bouts. You know, what did um, uh, Winston Churchill used to call him? He had a name for it, but he had a name for his, for his, uh, his, his black, uh, black dog. That was what he called it. And every once in a while, his black dog would come around, so he would just have to wait until the black dog went away. And I kind of treated it for that reason. And I found out through the next that two-year dark night of the soul that what what was causing the, my, in my depression was the amount of energy that it took to suppress the things I didn't want to face in my life. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it takes an enormous amount of psychic energy to keep the lid on. I saw my father. My father was always this buoyant. Um, guy who was always, um, you know, up at the track at dawn and always had a million things to do. And, and if you ever complained about anything, he would say, well, you just keep busy. You just stay busy. And um, and then when he got to be about 80 years old, he started having severe, severe depression. And I, I realized in, in talking to him, et cetera, that all the things that he, when he was young and had a lot of vitality, he could keep the, he could get, keep the wild dogs chained in the basement, so to speak. But when you don't have all that energy and psychic energy anymore to hold all that stuff down, it starts coming up again. You know, it starts coming up, and 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 mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and I, I found in myself that my depression was really psychic exhaustion from fighting against some, the, the things in my life that I didn't want to see and I didn't want to face. You know, I, I came across later uh, after I uh, in 1998 uh, I had a spiritual experience, so I can say on the other side that since 1998 I have never had one moment of depression. Mm-hmm. What happened? Moment. What was your spiritual? Can I ask you that? Is that all right? Well, yeah, you can you can ask me that. It, but um, what happened is that things uh, this this dark night of the soul. Uh, I read a book later on called um, The Ego and the Dynamic Ground, which I thought was it was like written for me. Now, and I read it after everything happened to me. But well, this guy's a psychologist, and he wrote about it. He said, "Despair is a wonderful thing. 
It is so unremitting and so painful that it's about the only thing that will force the ego to face its own nothingness and guilt. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and I just kept spiraling down until I got very, very desperate. And um, I finally called a psychologist. I was up in um, who had a spiritual psychologist that I'd worked with briefly back in 1980, and I called him in 1998. And he was still there. And uh, he answered the phone, and I, he said, come on up. And I went up, and I checked into a really cheap motel and I started doing two hours a day of work with him and, and all hell broke loose. I started having visions and I started seeing demons and I, my dead mother came back. I mean, he just, you know, I can't even, there's a whole book mm-hmm. in the whole week. Okay. And it just so happened, Robert, that it turned out to be Holy Week. And okay. on Good Friday, I called up my, my company, my, and I'd only gone up there during Holy Week because I thought, oh, business will be slow. It'd be a great time to work with this guy. And on Good Friday, I called up, and I, and I said to my um, partner, I said, I won't be back Monday like I'd planned. And he said, when will you be back? And the interesting thing about that whole week was I only spoke either alone or I was with my psychologist. So if he asked me the question or if I asked a question, the answer would come instantaneously from the deepest part of you with the force of, thus says the Lord. Wow. I couldn't restrain that the truth would just come out. And as soon as he said, when are you going to be coming back? This thing came out of me like, thus says the Lord, I won't be coming back. I'm either going to die or be institutionalized. That's what wow. I told myself. Today. Okay. And um, the very next day was Holy Saturday. And uh, and I honestly believe that this was, you know, there's more to say, but I don't want to take up all of our time talking about it. But when I went to see the next session, I honestly believe that that was the end, that that I was going to come apart for one final way in that last session on Holy Saturday, and he, and he would call the ambulance or whatever. That was it. But I never considered not going because I was at the end of my rope. I was absolutely at the end of my rope. And I remember telling my partner, I said, you know, he said um, something to me, and I said, listen, I had a dream last night that my ther- that, that this psychologist I'm working for it said, why don't you go back to to um, North Carolina, you've been through so much, and why don't you rest up for a few months or a week or whatever, and then come back up and we'll finish this. And I told my partner, I said, you know, um, Dave, uh, you know what I said in the dream? I said, no, it stops here. It ends here. I no longer care if I'm going to die or I'm going to go insane. I will not live any longer, you know, in, in, in lies and BS and bull and all the stuff that I've lived all my life with. And uh, the next day I went uh, with a firm conviction that I was at the end, and instead I ended up having this incredible, indescribable spiritual experience. And the next thing I really remember is it's Easter Sunday, and I'd happen to go to church with the um, therapist because he was belonged to the, to the local church, and the bells were ringing and the sun was shining, and I was reborn. And guess what? It happened to be Easter Sunday. So all of this happened between Good Friday right. and Easter Sunday. Mm-hmm. So, and from Great that story. day to this day, mm-hmm. I've never had a moment, not even a moment. Now, my, I've had sadness, tremendous sadness when my brother was killed in an accident, but no depression. So I believe that it, to, um, there's a wonderful, another Pulitzer Prize winning book called by Ernest Becker, which he calls, the, it's called The Denial of Death. And he said, the real dilemma of humanity is that we are the only creatures that, because we're animals, we long to live, but we but we're the only animals that know we're going to die. And this bifurcation in our being leads to uh, what we have to do is we have to suppress the, the knowledge of our death. So even though we say we know we're going to die, we really don't admit it to ourselves. And, um, and I think this, there's, a, there's a psychic struggle that takes place, and mm-hmm. a lot of depression is caused by the psychic struggle over a lot of things you just don't want to face in your life. Speaking of my, the monastery, for example, I mean, it's a tremendously peaceful place. You know, it's it's 10,000 acres. It was used to be the winter estate of Henry and Claire Booth Luce, Mepkin Abbey I'm talking about. And uh, Henry Luce mm-hmm. started Time Inc. and Sports Illustrated. And Claire Booth, of yep. course, was a wonderful intellectual. And, and the New York Times has done several articles about the monastery. But one really struck me because they were interviewing guests, and the guests were saying how beautiful it is here and how peaceful it is here. And you can see that in the paintings in my book. Yes, but but one guy said yes, it's ex- very peaceful and it's very lovely. But let me tell you something: when you're sitting on a park bench overlooking the Cooper River in silence for hours at a time, you end up thinking about a lot of things you might rather not think about. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's interesting. That's a great point. You know, here uh, I'm in New York City, and uh, a lot of people say, oh, you know, uh, you know, if you want to go, if you can go meditate up on a mountain in the Himalayas or something, you know, that's that's great. Try doing it here. So there's spirituality and spiritual challenges wherever you may be. So let's talk about the going to the Trappist, you know, choosing Trappist monks and the monastery. What was it like um, being a guest at the monastery? What was your day like? Uh, I've got a bunch well, of I questions. Just down, I was just down there last week, so I've been going okay. ever since. I, I mean, so the day starts at 3 o'clock in the morning. The bell, mm-hmm. a, bell ring, a buzzer rings in your room at 3 o'clock in the morning, and you get up uh, roughly around 3, and uh, at 3.20 you have your first service of the day, which is called vigils. And what the monks do at their most of their services is uh, they sit across from each other and they chant the psalms back and forth. They, they start with a hymn, and then you chant the psalms back and forth to each other. For and then um, and there's a reading from the from scriptures and uh, and uh, then there's prayers and it takes about thirty thirty minutes or so and that's the, your first um, service of the day and then you go into meditation uh, for an hour or two and then there's another service called lauds. And then there's breakfast, and then after that you go to mass for uh, for about 30 minutes or so, and then after that uh, you have a uh, contemplation for 15 or 20 minutes, and they have another service called terse, and that lasts for about 15 minutes. And then you go to work, and then you work all morning, and then at noon there's another service for about 10 minutes, and then you go to lunch, and then there's a service for about 15 minutes after lunch, and then you go back to work for the afternoon. Now, you, it was a mushroom farm where you were, uh, August? When I first started going there, the, the monks were raising, uh, had 40,000 chickens, and they, 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 chickens, they, okay. they made eggs. Now were they, they um, mushrooms. Were they, uh, and, and I'm, I'm not trying to be flip or anything, but were the chickens raised, in your opinion, in a humane way? Yes, I thought they were raised, and I worked in that chicken farm tremendously amount of time. I remember asking Brother Robert one time, I said, uh, who, who worked in the egg house, and I said, uh, I was there one day helping him, and I said, do you think the chickens are happy? He says, oh, I know they're happy. And I said, how do you know they're happy? He says, because if they're not happy, they don't lay. Mm-hmm. He said, and the average uh, chicken farm will get nine eggs out of every ten chickens every day. It's about the average. He said, we get 9.6. Um, so um, I thought, I, I never had any sense for, at all that they they were abusing, although PETA then came around and and they tried to make a big stink about it, you know, which mm-hmm. is one of the reasons why the, I, I, they stopped um, doing eggs is because PETA wanted to make them a huge example of abusing chickens. Oh right, right, right. Um, I thought was, was a big pile of you know what. Um, how about um, beer? Now I know Trappist. I don't mean to get off. Um, again, I'm not trying to be flip or anything, but Trappist monks make really good beer. They make a well. I wrote a whole book called "The Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks," which chronicles why I think they're so great. A bit, which, by the way, led to me becoming a leadership contributor for Forbes magazine, which is something else that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I read an article for them called "Business Secrets" that went viral, which led to a book called "Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks." And what I do is I chronicle why I think they're so great at business and how I used all their same secrets to well, give us a couple business. of bullet points there we can you know we're going to because we'll, well, we'll the, talk the, about the, brother john next but let's keep let's talk about well, i think it's really points, fascinating bullet points the bullet points are all the, the, always the same thing you know um selflessness the, the monks are so great at business because they're not in business because they're in it for something much bigger than business mm-hmm. so the brand that they have so that so that they everything they do is an offering to god so when they make beer or they make jelly or they do mushrooms or they do eggs, everything they do is an offering to God. So they put their heart and soul into it. And as a result, they end, they end up with this incredible brand for quality. And, um, and, it's, and it's, it's complete selflessness. And as I said in uh, Business Secrets, it's in our own self-interest to forget our self-interest. And the more successfully you forget your selfish motivations, the more successful you will be. Mm-hmm. And they believe that, and they live that, and people trust them, and people want to help them, and people want to, you know, people feel closer to a, to a, to the purpose of life just by buying their eggs. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, by the way, I didn't know anything about the P- PETA going chasing them around about the chicken, so that's not why I asked the question. I was just no, curious. I don't care. Fine, that's fine. Okay. Um, 
So when when you were there, you had this moment where Brother John came out with the umbrella, and you know some might say if some that happens to some people, they might just you know say thank you and they get walked back to their quarters. And I was like, wow, that was a really nice thing to do. But for you, it turned into an essay. It turned into a book. It changed your life. And, and I, one of the things I want the audience to know is you have been so generous in that the $100,000 plus proceeds from the book and all that, you are doing a lot of good things with that money. So first of all, that's great. Congratulations on uh, walking the walk. But um, what was it about, why do you think that moment with the umbrella uh, was a tipping point for you? Well, you know, um, I try to explain that. It's one of the things that, I'm, that I get into deeply into the book. But um, to me, it was confrontational. Um, here's a man who's been in the monastery for 50 years at the time, or 40 years at the time. He uh, gets up at 2.30 in the morning to make coffee for all the other monks. Gets up even earlier than they do. He's the foreman, so he works harder than almost anybody. He never gets to go to any parties. There's like one party a year. It's on Christmas Eve. Right after Mass, he's been up since 3 in the morning. It's not 11 o'clock at night. And rather than be in, and it's 38 degrees and it's raining outside on Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. And rather than inside having a glass of cider and a cookie, this man prefers, out of his own free will, to stand outside in case, like he said to me, I said, Brother John, what are you doing? He said, I'm here to walk people who might have forgot their umbrellas back to their rooms. Why? Why is he doing that? Why am I not doing that? Why are we not all doing that? You know, and um, and this is it was very very confrontational. What what makes a man that kind of a person? Um, and 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 it, and, I, and it wasn't. And I realized that Brother John wasn't doing it because he was afraid of going to hell. He wasn't doing it through clenched teeth. Um, he was doing it as naturally as I was breathing. Now, he was before living in this place of, mm-hmm. of utter love. Mm-hmm. So where do you, how do you get to that point? How do you become that kind mm-hmm. of person? Okay. Now, before that point, were, what were you, if you don't mind my asking, your kind of uh, religious beliefs? Did they change? Did this open things up for you? You said you were a spiritual seeker, and uh, so I'm sure you were open-minded. But having the experience of spending time and kind of living with, living with these monks and then having this uh, – epiphany, if you will, from Brother John's walk with you. Uh, Did you see, and now do you see religion now in a different way? Um, Part of why I'm asking is that, you know, more and more I keep hearing, and I kind of agree with it, that the Bible is, um, in many ways, it's a metaphysical book beyond just, you know, the stories. It's a lot more, there's a lot of alchemy in it and a lot of symbolism in it. What, What are your thoughts and how did your... How did your thoughts about uh, and beliefs about religion change, and how did your um, um, uh, knowledge and thinking about the Bible change, if they did? Well, here's here. I, I really took this up. I started it. You know, I look at my two books, uh, Brother John, and the, and the other one is Business Secrets, as bookends. As a matter of fact, my publisher for Business Secrets said, "You're not you know, it's Columbia Business School, by the way. Publish my other book." And they said, and my publisher said, "You're not kidding me." He said, "This is this is has this this is like a Trojan horse. It has a veneer of business, but it's really mm-hmm. a Trojan horse that you stuffed your spiritual ideas in." And what I say there, and what I'm really getting to in my in both books, is that there isn't it isn't different strokes for different folks. There isn't a million different purposes to life. It isn't uh, a Nike's just do it. We're all here mm-hmm. for the same reason, and every religion is teaching the same thing. It's a transformational journey from selfishness to selflessness. And what I take up in detail in my other book is the idea of the hero's journey from Joseph Campbell, which I'm pretty sure you probably are familiar with. Yep. Mm-hmm. And Joseph Campbell studied all the religions and all the myths and all the folk stories and all the fairy tales. And he came up with this. He said, what's really going on behind the scenes and all this is a very similar thing. And I, and I boiled it down. I said, uh, forgive me, Joseph Campbell, but I'm going to boil it down in the interest of brevity. And here are the stages. The first stage is you are called. The second stage is you resist the call. The third stage is you go to the, de- uh, to the desert. The fourth stage is you're, you're tested. The fifth stage is you're the death and rebirth. And the final stage is you return to help other people. Now, if you go to your biblical idea, the whole idea is, that, is Moses gets called in, in by the burning bush. 
and a call, a call is the vocation. You know, you're called to do something. And and then he immediately resists. No, I don't want to go. I, I'm not any good at this. Send my brother. Um, he resists it, but eventually he accepts his call. And I and I make the point that you know almost every movie that we love is based on the hero's journey, whether it's the right. the, mm-hmm. the Groundhog's Day or 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 uh, you know all these movies are completely that. De- I said if you if we're spending billions of dollars to go watch other people take the hero's journey, what that's telling me is we all deep down inside we want to take the hero's journey. And, um, you know, like I said, I come from a business background, and we talk about dollar votes. If you want to know what people really want, then look at what they spend their money on. Not what they tell you they want. Look what they actually will spend their money on. Mm-hmm. And what we spend our money on is to go by the billions to watch people take the hero's journey. You know, it's, it's the same thing. You know, the, the, the car pulls up in front of a house out in the middle of the desert, and, and, a, and, a, and a spiffy young captain jumps out and, and – uh, and a drunken Clint Eastwood comes out of the house, and they say, we need you to come back to the Air Force. That's the call. Yep. And then Clint Eastwood says, no, get the heck out of here. I'll never come back there. He's resisting the call. And then he finally comes back, and he accepts the challenge, and then he has to be trained again, and then it's really arduous, and he almost fails 15,000 times. And, and Yoda stands over and says, don't try, do. And, and, and you know, and Neo has to try to fly, and, and it falls on his face. And um, and so these movies walk us through the exact same uh, model, and this tells us this is what we need to do. Now, now we can boil the whole hero's journey down again t- to one movement. It's a journey from selfishness to selflessness. And um, now, do you and think that's, that's, um, that's all it is? Mm-hmm. Do you think uh, now that you're um, did you make that journey? Yes, I absolutely believe. As a matter of fact, I had an interesting, well, I had that spiritual experience, and I kept unpacking. But in 2004, when I wrote the essay, Brother John, the greatest compliment to this day that I think I got on it was my brother Chris. I have six younger brothers. My youngest brother, Chris, is an attorney. And he told me that he was in court, and he was telling one another one of the attorneys about me winning the contest. And his colleague said, you mean to tell me your brother had never written anything in his life? He goes up against professional writers, previously published material, and he whips off an essay in 48 hours, and he wins 100 grand. And my brother said, yeah, that's pretty much what happened. He says, boy, is your brother lucky. And my brother Chris said, no, you don't understand. Augie's been working on that essay for 35 years. Exactly. Yep. And, when, and mm-hmm. I went back to the essay, Robert, at that point, and I went, with tears in my eyes, I read it, and I said, I could not have written this essay in 1996. I mm-hmm. didn't understand I these things. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit. Kierkegaard yeah. said, Go Problem ahead. with life is you must live it forward and only understand it backwards. Yep, amazing. Now you're so right, August. Um, you talk about I know in the the book about the the business uh, uh, business practices of the monks that uh, the they okay the secrets that they know how to let success happen and uh, I want you to talk about that a little bit if if, if we could because so many people nowadays. You know, who are getting to onto the spiritual seeking path, if you will, the first thing they, you know, they start getting into, oh, manifesting, like you have to visualize what you want and then think like it's there already and feel what it feels like I and taste what that. it tastes like. And um, I think what happens is a lot of people get frustrated because, and they become their, they become the impediment to, to manifesting what they want to manifest because they are based on cultural um, conditioning um, to controlling of what the outcome has to be. And I know I've been guilty of that myself, as I think most of it has been. And the monks uh, know how to let, let it happen at a certain point. You know, if you ask the universe for something, if you keep asking every day, it's like, you know what? The universe doesn't need to be asked 300 times. They hear you the first time. You just have to do it the right way. And then you have to step back and um, allow it to happen. Maybe not the way, like a good story, August, where, you get the ending, the audience gets the ending they want, but not in the way they are expecting. So talk to us Absolutely. a little bit about, you know, letting, letting things, the monks knowing the secret about letting success happen instead of str- putting it in a stranglehold. Exactly. So the first part of that secret is they don't ask the universe directly. For, you know, we say, I want $100,000. Universe, give me $100,000. 
what they realize is that, you know, when, and, and I say in my book a uh, hundred times over again, I say you can take it literally if you're religious or you can take it metaphorically if you're not. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and everything else will come to you. So you, you, you work your higher purpose. And the things that you, that you, th- you might have asked for by this visualization or asking, the, these things are the byproducts, the trailing indicator that you're living the right kind of life. I call this aiming past the target. You know, in business, for example, I talk to people all the time in leadership. I said, you know, you guys are getting into leadership because you want to get ahead yourself. That's completely wrong. The task of leadership is not to make you successful. The task of leadership is for you to make other people successful. Mm-hmm. You forget yourself completely. Forget your career. Forget getting promoted. Forget how much money you're going to make. And concentrate exclusively on making all the other people you can successful. And guess what will happen? You'll get ahead even faster. It'll come to you. Let's talk about sales, you know. You know, the, the, every great salesman, I can, and, I, by the, and I, I feel qualified to talk about this. I was actually on the cover of Selling Magazine one time. Every great salesman knows that the more he forgets about himself, forgets about his quota, forgets about his product, forgets about his commissions, and fanatically just focuses on helping his customer, the commissions take care of themselves. Yeah, that's true. And so the monks are mm-hmm. not even in business. You know, if, you, if, you, if I told the monks that they were in business, they would laugh at me. They're serving God by serving other people. And oh, by the way, it just happens to spill over into business, and they make a lot of money. But it's, it's, it's almost a happy accident that it all happens that way. Let me tell you a quick story from what happened with me. Is that sure. Some of my students at Duke went off to uh, New York, and they started a company. And, uh, and, and I, was teach- I was coaching them on spirituality. We never talked about money or anything. So anyway, they started a company in New York City on Columbus Circle, as a matter of fact. So I go up there to help them out. They need their, my help. And they said, when I got up there, and this is 2009, I said, um, they said, we can't pay you. We need help. But we can't. I said, well, you know, I'm into this service and selflessness stuff, so I guess i got to help. And can you pay the expenses? They said, yeah, they'll pay your expenses. And I said, well, just give me some stock or something. So they gave me a, a boatload of stock, and I, wor- I worked for about four months, Robert, and I came back to North Carolina, and I thought, you know, this stock is something I'll, put, I'll paper my you know, bathroom with, this stock, you know, for all it'll ever be worth. Well, they went public for a couple of billion dollars. The stock's $27 a share. So I di- but I didn't go over to the Duke University and start coaching students because I thought to myself, universe, give me a job at Duke so that I'll meet some college kids, and they'll start a company, and then they'll give me stock, and then I'll get money out of it. No, it never crossed my mind that this would ever happen. Mm-hmm. And the more How? I, the more I dedicate my life that way, that all these these amazing things happen, like winning the Templeton Foundation. I never thought I was going to be a writer. I didn't ask the, the universe to make me a writer. A, a lot of people um, have a challenge of, and it seems like you've done a very good job with it of moving from um, fear. For, uh, freeing, freeing themselves from fear and from a fear-based way of living. And now in our culture today, regardless of your politics, I think you would agree that there's a lot of fear being used against people um, by the media, no matter what side of the fence you're, you know, you're on. And um, it's just pervasive uh, in our culture. Uh, how, what, what, are, what do you talk to us a little bit about that and how you uh, overcame that to uh, free yourself from fear to be able to let the things happen uh, and connect with your higher purpose? Well, that's a great question, Robert, because, you know, I get asked the question a lot, what do you think is holding us back? You know, people in the audience say, what's holding me back or what's holding us back or what keeps people from following Brother John? Or, and I deal with this, and I get into this in my, in my book, Brother John, The Monk of Pilgrim and the Purpose of Life. It's fear. It's always fear, and it's not the media that's creating the fear. It's there to start with. They may tap into it, but they don't, they're not creating it. Right. And, we're, you know, and of course, the primal, primal fear of all is knowing that we're going to die someday. But, but yeah, there's, so what is, that's what the hero's journey is all about, is overcoming the, the, that's the fear. You know, I wrote an article for Forbes that ended up becoming one of my most popular articles, which took me completely by surprise. You know, they have a counter on Forbes, so you can see how many thousands or tens or hundreds of thousands of people read your article. And um, it was called, uh, What Every Leader Must Know About Personal Development. 
And I said, the hardest question I do a lot of these podcasts and things, I said, the hardest question I get is people ask me, what do you do for personal development? And I said, the reason why it's hard is because most people think that the, uh, you do personal development so you can bring it back to business and make money out of it. I said, I never looked at it that way. I said, personal development was, I didn't do personal development in order to get anything else. Personal development was the purpose of my life. <laughs> right. it, was the high, it was my highest priority. It came first. And, and so this taking this, you know, hero's journey idea, that's exactly what, what it is. When, on Good Friday, when I got to the end of my rope and I told my, my partner, I said, I just can't, I, I don't care if I die or go insane anymore because I'd, I'd rather, you know, I refuse to live in fear anymore. It was fear that was causing it. Holding back the fear, your finger in the dike of holding back the fear is what causes the depression. So facing, you know, I have a wonderful story, I think it's a wonderful story, about Brother William in my, in my okay, Business please. Secrets book. And um, uh, Brother William was a monk. He's since passed away. And he and I got to be close, even though I didn't know anything about him. I still don't know. And we're, one day he, he and I were sitting on a park bench, and he happened to mention that he had been um, he had been a, a comma hermit for a while, years before. He had gone out in the woods and lived in the woods by himself in a hermitage or a cabin all by himself for several years. So I started asking him, what did you do? What time did you get up? What, you know, how did you spend your days, et cetera? And eventually I asked the question I really wanted to ask him. And I said, Brother William, did you get anything out of it? And he was looking straight ahead with his elbows on his knees, and he turned to me and he said, I had to face myself. Mm-hmm. And it blew my mind. I didn't know. I didn't know what I was expecting. He, that he had a vision from the Virgin Mary, or you know, whatever, or epiphanies, or what. He had to face himself. And if you want to overcome fear, you have to face yourself at some point. And that's what the hero's journey is all about. Is that is that um, August? Is that the the shadow self? When you say you have to face yourself, is that really what uh, the things that were bottled up and uh, have kind of been uh, repressed? Exactly. Exactly. I asked another monk one time, I said he would just join, and <clears throat> he'd been an executive at Columbia University, actually, and I said, Jim, I said, how's it going so far? It was the first time we actually even spoke, and he said, it's hard, and it's so much harder than I thought it was going to be. And I said, why do you say that? And he said, and he said, because I'm right here all the time, and he put his hand, his palm of his hand right in front of his nose. Mm-hmm. In other words, I'm looking in the mirror all the right. time. right. And um, and that's you know in looking at uh, really seeing our own inadequacies. You know, Saint John of the Cross is a famous famous mystic, and he, he said the final great um, uh, before the union with God. He said the final great challenge is when you become so self conscious of how imperfect and flawed and sinful that you are that you fear that even God couldn't save you. And really looking into your own heart and seeing the, the demons that are there. You know. The, the, the kinds of things you don't want to look at about you. So yeah, and that's Carl Jung's idea of the shadow and and um, all of those things that you know that you like that guy said that you'd rather not think about um, mm-hmm. that you're not living the right kind of life that you're that you're um, you know that you're a phony as J D Salinger would say and that you're you know and a lot of us have that feeling. I know I had that feeling. That, um, yeah. that do you, do you stay in touch that. with Brother John? I just saw him last weekend. As a matter of fact, the monastery um, uh, purchased 500 copies of uh, Brother John, the monk, the pilgrim, the purpose of life, and they just gave them to their 500. Or they, had a, they have their annual, they have a concert and a reception for their their, their donors, their benefactors. <coughs> Excuse me. And Brother John and I sat together and signed 500 copies of his books and wow. gifts for monasteries. So he's he's doing great. He's still the um, monastery's business manager and. And he's a, he's a wonderful, wonderful man. Oh, fantastic! Listen, August, you are an inspiration. You've done wonderful things. What's what's next for you? Well, I think what's next. I have a couple other ideas for for books if I if I don't get too lazy in my in my dotage. Um, but right now, um, what I'm really what I'm really dedicated to, Robert, which it's a great question, is that you know there was an article in New York Magazine just recently about um, the opioid crisis. A guy named Andrew Sullivan wrote it. Yep. I was really mm-hmm. struck because, you know, rather than round up the usual suspects, he said the opioid – he said this is a symptom of something much, much deeper. Yep. He said we're experiencing a spiritual crisis in America. He said we've created a modern life that everybody wants to escape. And he said um, increasingly millions of Americans, he said, are um, – you know, he said those core elements of human happiness, 
faith, family, community are increasingly elusive for so many Americans. And when we've lost our sense of purpose, we've lost our sense of, of, um, of a higher purpose in life. And so I have a nonprofit corporation that you alluded to that all the money that I make from my books and my lectures and my talks and my coaching all goes into this. And I want to use the example of Brother John and hopefully maybe even my own example to say to people there is a higher purpose in your life and you need to connect to that higher purpose. And that's the answer to depression and that's the answer to your <clears throat> your frustrations and the, that hole in the soul feeling that you that so many of us have. You know, the, Andrew Sullivan said in his article, he said, you know, there's 80 million Americans that are on anti-anxiety and anti-depression drugs. He said, and those are the successful ones. Are we surprised when the left um, it's amazing. need something stronger? It's amazing. Well, listen, um, great work, and uh, you are exemplifying um, how to lead and uh, how to live. Uh, the fact that you are giving back the way you are and how you've taken your essay that came from the heart and turned it into this book and then used the proceeds of the prize money and just to keep doing more and more. Um, I, I want to commend you and uh, thank you for being on Guys Guys Radio. August, a pleasure to meet you. You're a gentleman also. And uh, why don't you tell everybody where they can find more about you, the book, and about uh, the brothers? Okay, the, the the book is called Brother John, A Monk, A Pilgrim, and the Purpose of Life. You can find it on Amazon, most bookstores. You can also come to my, uh, we'll direct you to a bunch of different places to get it, at my website, which is augustturak.com. It's August, like the month, like the month, Turak, T is in Tom, U-R-A-K, all one word, augustturak.com. And if you want to know more about Mepkin, and, and I would really urge you, Go down there and take a retreat. They have a beautiful, spectacular retreat uh, center down there. The Cooper River runs through the property. It's got all these oaks with moss hanging off, oh, Spanish moss hanging off. Spectacular place. Um, it's called Mepkin Abbey, M-E-P-K-I-N, Abbey, A-B-B-E-Y, mepkinabbey.org. And you can find out all about how to visit and, uh, and, and go down there. Maybe I'll see you when I'm down there myself. All right. Sounds good. I'm going to keep it in mind, and I want to thank you again, August. Uh, you've been a great guest, and you're doing fantastic work, and you're a real inspiration. And this is exactly you're exactly the type of person I want to get on the show, the spiritual seekers, because a lot of people are wondering, like, what what's what is what makes life worth worth living? And I think you've done a lot to to teach people the path from self selfishness to selflessness. So thank you so much for being on Guys Guys Radio. You're doing great work yourself, Robert. Thank you. All right. Thank you, August. All right, folks. That's our special guest, August Turak, and his book is Brother John. Uh, Let's take a quick break, and then we'll do a little uh, wrap-up. The Guys Guys Radio. All right. We're back on Guys Guys Radio. Um, That was a deep spiritual discussion, so let's lighten it up a little bit. I just saw... um, First of all, when I was talking about the, our Guys Guys brand before and how we're expanding it, you know, it's still a lot of fun, though, uh, Guys Guy. It's not just about um, spirituality and wellness. It's also about casual confidence, being the best man you could be, a man, modern man, in the best sense of the word, not macho man. But Guys Guy is casually confident, unassuming strength, uh, integrity, but a seductive type of integrity, emotional intelligence, timeless style, and also some fun. So speaking of uh, speaking of fun, um, I saw in the news today that the Rolling Stones are going back. Uh, they're coming to the States again on tour uh, next spring and summer, early summer. And uh, I think it's a great thing. Whether uh, you, you're a big Stones fan or not, you have to give them props because these guys are these guys are in their 70s and they're mid-70s, and Charlie Watts, their drummer, he's going to be 78 by the time this next tour takes place. So that's pretty amazing. And I've got to tell you, I've seen them. I'm a big fan. I've seen them probably, I think, about 17 times now. And the best time I saw them, I was on a business uh, function, and uh, some guys in media got me tickets because they knew I was a fan, front row at Giant Stadium in 1994 for the Voodoo Lounge concert. So, you know, I actually could get, you know, look right at Jagger and get him to, you know, roll his eyes or something. It was amazing. Just if you're a big fan in the front row, whether it's you two or 
whoever your your fave is. Um, but that was spectacular, obviously. And uh, the second the second best show was in 2015. Actually, I went out to Pittsburgh, met up. It was kind of a guy trip. Met some friends. We met up in Pittsburgh. We went to uh, Heinz Field and we saw them, and they were shockingly good. Raw guitar band. Jagger was great. The guitars were great. The the set list was great. Uh, it was fantastic. Absolutely, I was like blown away. And we had good seats also for that. And then the third time was back in 1989. The Stones hadn't toured in seven years, and they did their Steel Wheels tour, kind of their comeback tour. Went to Shea Stadium. I bought eight seats. And we got a bunch of people together, guys, gals, and uh, we were buying. This was back in the day, 89. We were, it was, I remember it was October 26th. The reason I remember it, because I always kind of keep track of the weather that way, I wore a T-shirt. It was so warm. It was a beautiful evening. And uh, we were buying trays. This, this is way back when you could just keep drinking beer. <laughs> they didn't cut off the beer sales. Uh, we were buying trays of beer. We drank so much. I think Living Color was the opening act. Anyhow. Shea Stadium was, you know, it was aging and people were kind of going up and down. The whole stadium was physically shaking and it was amazing. I thought the whole, I thought Shea Stadium was going to collapse, but it was a great show, a great time. I actually went two nights, two nights in a row. I got seats because people at that time, they weren't that, it was, it was not that big a deal. And now, um, you know, their tour coming up. They're, they're, they're still their tickets will sell out in in minutes because they you know it goes back way back you can't you know you can see Paul McCartney but it's just Paul McCartney it ain't the Beatles with the Stones it's it's not the original Stones completely but you've got Mick Jagger you've got Keith Richards you've got Charlie Watts and Ron Wood's been with the band for like 30 years or something so it's pretty much a tight unit and uh, hopefully they'll have some new music by then I think. Uh, who knows if they've been running out of ideas, but you know, it's been 13 years since they've done an album. So we'd like to see something new from them, but you know what they, you know, here's a rock band. They used to be an example of like how not to be. And now you see how they are so professional and how they take care of themselves as, you know, I don't know about Keith Richards so much, but I think a lot of his act is put on. I don't, I think he's probably healthier than, you know, for him to be doing what he's doing at his age is, probably has a lot of medical attention. Jagger stays in great shape. He, he's bounding all over the stage and the other guys are, they're up there doing it. They're not just going through the motions. And that's great because age, I got to tell you, age is, age is a number. I've been doing my, uh, as I've spoken about many times on the show before my process of elimination diet, I'm on week 46. So I've given up 46 things this year. And it's really transformed my energy and my cravings, lost my craving for sugar. My habits of eating salty snacks and all that have faded. I haven't had a drink the entire year. Not that I was a big drinker anyhow, but I enjoy tequila and a beer now and then and a glass of good wine, um, but not, nothing. And it's really up my vibration. It's up my energy level. It's up my mental clarity. And uh, I realize that age is just a number. So if you're a professional, you just take care of yourself. You can keep doing what you're doing for a long time. So God bless the stones for going out there and doing it. And if you haven't seen them, check them out because they ain't going to be doing this forever. They're breaking new ground every time they get on stage and um, they're still bringing it. So anyhow, that's our show for this evening. I hope everybody has a happy Thanksgiving. Um, thanks so much for supporting me and our show and what we're trying to do here and what we're doing, not trying to do what we're doing here. And, um, if you want to support the show, just do a couple of things. Consider buy my novel, The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love. You can get it at Amazon and the e-tailers. You can get the physical book or uh, or a uh, uh, e-book. Um, also, you can uh, um, rate Guy's Guy's Radio on iTunes. That helps a lot. Subscribe to the podcast. Every one of the 327 podcasts can be downloaded for free. And we're going to keep trucking. We're booked through January, two shows a week. We've got a lot of fantastic guests. Um, as I mentioned, we're going to have a Hollywood producer on next Monday is our next show. We're going to take the rest of the week off. Jim Germanic, 
is going to be on back on the show and he's going to talk about his book beyond the craft, what you need to know to make a living creatively. And I think that can help a lot of people. So anyhow, thanks so much for being on the show with us tonight, listening in and um, have a great Thanksgiving, whether you eat turkey or not. And uh, we'll see you back uh, Monday night. All right. So remember guys, guys finish first.